Okay, the kiddos can go to children's church, and if you've got a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 23. Let's pray. Father, we approach your word with humility. We ask you to speak to us great truths. It's so important that we get right what you have us to be doing here on this earth in church as your servants, and we ask for wisdom in Christ's name, amen. Back when I was in graduate school a long, long time ago, I had a friend who was caught up in a a movement in L.A. called the Fundamentalist Army. The Fundamentalist Army was, um, they believed a lot of the right things and uh, things we would generally agree with, what we would call right right doctrine, but uh, when I say right doctrine, I mean theology, not how they did things. So orthodoxy is right doctrine and orthopraxy is right practice. So both are really important in having a church that glorifies Christ. And the practice of the fundamentalist army was attack and control. Um, Attack the world and control their people. And that's a mentality that characterizes many cults, of course, a belief that we're the only true followers of the faith and everybody else is a compromiser. And that mentality, um, it emphasizes zeal to the point where love and mercy begin to look like weaknesses. And it's a really dangerous way to go. And some of you have come from churches not dissimilar from that. The more intense you are, the more the leadership likes you. And they move you up into a position of uh, authority. And my friend um, in seminary, I had a friend who was in that, and he was allowed to preach at a gathering one time, and he was catching the whole spirit of the thing, what they expected, not the spirit, the spirit of the movement. And uh, he got so intense, he, he had a stand kind of like this, only smaller, and picked it up and threw it across the room as part of his preaching, and they just thought that was great. because. <laughs> The more violent you are, the more zeal you have, the better it is, you know. They thought that was a sign of true godliness. So um, the more you exercised authority in an authoritarian way, the more it was seen as spiritual. And the authority began to be exercised over people in areas of their lives that the church really has no business um, being a part of. And fortunately, my friend uh, realized how toxic this was and came out of that and got away from that. And that whole movement fell apart by the mid-'80s Um, because that kind of thing is pretty hard to sustain. But now a healthy church does have a real God-ordained, God-given authority. The church has a moral responsibility to exercise authority in matters of the soul, issues of doctrine, sound doctrine, and issues of sin in a congregation, moral conduct. We have authority to speak to that in people's lives. But a church can't tell you where to live or where to work, unless it's like evil, (laughs) or how often you have to be at church gatherings, or a church should never say, you have to do this in the church. You should do nursery, but you don't have to. And um, God told me that you're supposed to teach VBS and uh, those kind of things. You can't trick or treat, that's of the devil or whatever. A church can't govern all of your personal choices, and it shouldn't do that. I really appreciated John MacArthur's answer to a question and answer session they had at Grace Church a couple of years ago, he was asked, how much authority does a pastor have in the lives of his congregation? That's a really good question. 
And his answer was awesome. He said, none. <laughs> he said, no authority. And here's a guy who's pastoring a church of many thousands. He said, I have no authority in this church personally. My experience doesn't give me any authority. My knowledge doesn't give me any authority. My education doesn't give me any authority. My position doesn't give me any authority. My title doesn't give me any authority. Only the word of God has authority. Christ is the head of the church and he mediates his rule in the church through his word. I have no authority. I have no authority beyond the scripture. I can never exceed what was written. And he mentions 1 Corinthians 4, 6 there. To do that, Paul says, is to become arrogant and to regard oneself as superior. I have nothing to say to you or put a demand on you if it doesn't come from the word of God. That's, that's the perfect answer. That's the perfect answer. So we're talking about rules and expectations and pressure not found in scripture, just some person's idea or opinion, man-made ideas of what is spiritual. In fact, the fundamentalist army, if I remember correctly, they, they kicked people out if they were with their family on Christmas instead of coming to church. Because obviously you're super worldly and um, the Bible talks all about being at church for Christmas. <laughs> no, it actually doesn't mention that. But, um, so this is the world of Phariseeism. Man-made religion being imposed on the Bible and obscuring essential truths by focusing on the wrong things. Last week we looked at Jesus beginning his discourse on the Pharisees and he summed up their kind of religion in verse four and five. Let me read that. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels, the tassels of their garments. We talked about that last Sunday. What they do is burden people. That's what they do to others. What they care about is how they are perceived by other people. So titles, honors, respect, they were consumed by these things. And God's kingdom was just a tool really to advance their own vanity. And people often use religion, even the true religion, as a cloak for their own self-centered desires. And when we talk about Jesus condemning the Pharisees, it's really important to remember how much truth they really did have at hand. I mean, they were so near and yet, that's the old saying, so near and yet so far, right? That's sort of where the Pharisees were. So don't lose sight of verse 3 of chapter 23. The Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, Jesus says, therefore all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So they based their doctrine on Moses, which means they got a lot of things right doctrinally. They were not pagans. They weren't pushing foreign religions. They were not idolaters, at least in the usual sense that we use that term. But realize this, as close as they were, Jesus says they were children of hell. In verse 15, hypocrites, all through the chapter he calls them that, blind guides he calls them in verse 24. A brood of vipers in verse 33. Lawless in verse 28. So if you were a Pharisee, how would you like Jesus to write a resume for you as a recommendation? Let's see. What does it say here? Brood of vipers, hypocrite, child of hell. Are you sure you're qualified for this pastoral position? 
he was not their biggest fan. Told them the truth. So it behooves us to pay really close attention to Jesus' analysis of the religion of the Pharisees um, because what he sees and what he condemns is alive and well today in different places. And there are eight woes that Jesus delivers regarding the Pharisees. We're going to look at seven of them today. A woe, like I mentioned last week, is not how you stop your horse. That's an act and error. (laughs) A woe is a W-O-E. It's a pronouncement of a curse, actually, a pronouncement of condemnation, of wrath. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator, frighteningly put it like this. He says, Who shall entreat for him who the great intercessor pleads against? You know, Christ pleads for us before the throne of God. If he is against you, who's going to plead for you? That's the condition of the Pharisee. If the gentle and merciful Savior condemns you, what hope do you have? So the first woe gets to the heart of the problem right away in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They keep people out of the kingdom of God. That's their work, to keep people from entering the kingdom. Whatever men do that is evil, can there be a greater evil than keeping people away from Jesus and out of his kingdom? They labor to keep people out of it. How many people do you suppose were drawn to Jesus but turned away from him because of the slanderous comments of the Pharisees about him? It could have been many, many thousands. Remember John chapter 9 um, when Jesus healed a blind man in the temple and they used intimidation to try to keep people from acknowledging Jesus? I'm going to read part of that for you. This is John chapter 9 verse 15. It says, The Pharisees were asking him again how he received his sight, this blind man. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes and I, and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. He was healing on the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. And it says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So you could be excommunicated, ostracized for confessing Christ. People were afraid of admitting they wanted to follow Jesus. This man is not from God, some of them said. So in Matthew 12 then, Jesus, remember he cast a demon out of a man and and in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 12 they said, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they, they were telling people that Jesus was demonic, satanic. They were wicked, 
proud men who denied to others salvation that they themselves had no interest in. The second woe is found in verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. If you haven't been with us lately, you know the word hypocrite is actually a Greek word, hypocrites, which means actor. It's the word they use for people on the stage. And that's what Jesus routinely called the Pharisees. They were performers, not real. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. We don't know exactly what this is referring to historically, but in some way they were not protecting widows, but actually draining their resources. Some believe it may have been a fee-for-service thing to help manage their estates, that really but they used that to take advantage of them, maybe charging for religious services. That would explain the long prayers. That could be another thing. Oh, my dear, you uh, let us pray for you. That's only going to cost uh, 50 shekels or whatever that kind of a thing is. Religions do this. They raise money this way in all kinds of ways. Charge for prayers, um, expecting money for blessings, money for assistance, and goes on and on like that. And some of the things people have told me over the years of religions they came out of it's pretty shocking, actually, how much money gets exchanged for blessings. And in Africa, they do that all the time. When We've seen that when we were there. And, of course, it's on TV. All you got to do is turn on certain channels, right? Super rich televangelists living in splendor and making these tear-soaked appeals for cash. And if you ever bear to watch them, they often aim at little old ladies because, you know, who do they call in these scam telephone things? Elderly people, right? So they, they do the same thing on TV. They aim at them. Now you... Your little grandma's out there. We need to hear from you. Send whatever you can and we will pray for you in our prayer tower. Right next to the dumpster where we put all your prayer cards. We're praying for that. That's what they do. And they get the little ladies to send in their social security checks or whatever like that. Long prayers. Very public religious displays. Outward piety all the while just advancing their own greedy desires and taking people's money. So James tells us in his little book that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the Pharisees neglected the central aspect of genuine piety as the Bible defines it. And by their methods were actually working against the well-being of widows, people that had lost their husbands, women who needed help, all in the name of religion. They did that. And Jesus had observed that and he calls them out on it. The third woe has to do with making converts. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, actors, because you travel around on the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's not a very strong commendation for them. And we also don't know a whole lot about Jews actively seeking to make Gentile converts to Judaism in the first century, but it definitely happened. You could go anywhere in the Roman Empire and there was probably a synagogue and that synagogue probably had many people in it who were Gentiles who were attracted by the God of Israel who was the only moral God available and uh, wanted to worship him but not become full Jews. And they were called God-fearers. Um, if you became a Jew, you had to get circumcised and that was not real appealing to most people. So um, uh, that and other ritual requirements and dietary requirements probably kept them back. But they loved, they loved the true God, the moral God, the God who was infinite, that created all things, that was good and not evil. And um, they, they were drawn to that. So they did evangelize people in that sense. They tried to draw people in to their, to their Jewish religion. There's nothing wrong with that. 
except what they did with them after they got there. They didn't turn them into the worshipers of the one true God, the God of Moses. They turned God-fearers, if they could, if they could get a hold of them, into Pharisees so that they became actors too. That was their job. Of course, they don't understand that's what they're doing. I mean, that's, they justify their own wickedness, but that's what they're doing. We want you to be like us, not follow what the Bible says. How tragic, uh, uh, really, to get so close to the true God and then have people yanked off the path by Phariseeism with all of its pride and all of its vanity. And Jesus says, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Son of, in, in scripture, means characterized by. You're a, if you're a son of hell, you're characterized by hellishness. And they took these converts, and converts are usually more intense in their devotion than people that were born into something. And they took them and made them hellish people. Why? Because they were converted to the right book from the true God but then bought into a system of religion that denied or ignored the central tenets of that book. So they were being drawn to the true God and the real book and these guys took them and twisted them so they would not understand it properly and get into the kingdom. So they were made converts to Phariseeism, not to the living God. And I'm sure they boasted of their converts in true Phariseeical fashion, right? Have you ever seen a Christian more delighted in the number of souls won to Christ for the glory of his ministry than for the glory of the Lord? It's that spirit. God spare us from thinking like that. Fourth woe, verse 16. And here Jesus employs a, a really powerful image to describe the Pharisees. This is the blind guide, which would be funny if it wasn't so outrageously horrible. You can just picture a blind man leading his friend, who is blind, toward a big open pit. I mean, what a tragic scene that is. Have you ever been in a situation you, where you found out you were following someone who had no idea where they were going? Ever been in one of those? No idea of the pitfalls ahead, the snares ahead? So if you follow somebody in faith, you'd better be sure they know where the pitfalls are and where they're going. How can they keep you out when they've fallen in themselves and don't even know that they've done it, Right? So the issue in the fourth woe, the specific issue is oath-taking, swearing, making promises. A subject we covered a lot in Matthew chapter 5, but that was a long time ago. So the Pharisees made a a really silly, superstitious game out of oath-taking. And it's total nonsense. Verse 16, Jesus has watched this his whole life. Woe to you blind guides who say... Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple which sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. He's just saying, whatever, all these distinctions you're making are silly. In verse 21, whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells within it. So if you're swearing by the temple, that's God's house, so you're swearing by God. And, and whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. He says, there, there are no degrees of oath-taking. 
a system of degrees of validity. Oh, that wasn't a real oath because I didn't say this or I didn't swear by that. You could swear by some things and it was binding and other things and it was not binding to them. And the example Jesus brings up are, they're just so kooky. If you swear an oath by the sanctuary of the temple, the Pharisee would say, you don't have to keep it. But swear by the gold in the sanctuary, then you've got to keep it. Swear by the altar, it's not valid. Swear by the offering on the altar, that's valid. It's just madness, it's crazy. All oaths are binding in scripture. All are done in the presence of God and God is a witness to every oath you make, every promise you make. So there's another area where their hair splitting actually becomes evil because it's turning people away from obeying the law of God. By doing, giving it up this silly way, they're making people say actual oaths which they're accountable for and telling them they're not accountable for it. That's sin. They're actually teaching people to sin. God wants to see complete integrity. Just tell the truth. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, right? Anything else is of evil, he says. People should know that you're so truthful that if you say yes, you mean yes, and if you say you no, know, you mean no, and that's it. If you have to finagle and swear and, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, oh, I had my fingers crossed. If you have to do stuff like that, you're a disaster. You, your, your statements should be yes or no, with integrity. The fifth woe shows us another example of hair-splitting, fastidious, external piety that they like to boast of, the Pharisees, while ignoring much more important things. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, actors, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now that is funny. <laughs> if you actually got a little strainer and you're trying to get gnats out of your thing and then you swallow a camel, that's, you're being silly. So they were fanatical tithers, 10% of everything, the exact number. Now the law of God in the Old Testament did require tithing. Deuteronomy 14.22 says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So tithing was definitely commanded in the Old Testament. But the law only required tithing. It specifically mentions the things to tithe. And those are major crops or major produce from your land, right? Grains, oil, fruit, and flocks. And Jesus said the Pharisees tithe mint and dill and cumin. Those are like little garden spices. That's like the little thing you put on your shelf, you know, the little tube of spices you have on a rack somewhere. So you've got to separate out all those little things and make sure you're giving 10%. That's what the Pharisees would do. And they boasted out that. We are so careful to tithe every little, that isn't even, that's not a law. They just made that up to make themselves look more holy. And other people wouldn't bother doing that, so we're holy, you're not. We make the extra rules. And they love for people to know how scrupulous they were about their tithing. Well, there's no law against it. Um, so if they want to do that, I mean, that's okay. But uh, if they use the same care and pas 
passion for justice, mercy, and faithfulness, then they would be somewhere. And that's what Jesus is saying. We have to be discerning people. You know, it's on, it's on us. This is really important. You need to notice teachers or ministries who have extreme zeal about really small things and neglect bigger things. That's the more important things. That's, that's what he's dealing with here. If a, if a big emphasis on tithing or attendance at meetings or street evangelism or various signs of commitment to the group that you have to show, but there's less emphasis on the central aspects of personal holiness like love and mercy and forgiveness and humility, then stay away from those people. You can always tell. It's not that hard to tell if you think about it. Just use your own brain and use the Bible. If you do all that external stuff but don't forgive or love someone or if I cling to bitterness in my heart or if I'm prideful or harsh or dishonest in my dealings or hurtful in the way I whisper about people, you name it, any of that stuff, if I'm not doing that right, I'm not being taught right. And I'm not doing what God wants me to do. So you kind of watch the leader in those deals. If, if they're frequently harsh or they act superior and point to themselves as models of righteousness, how they go the extra mile for God while others don't really understand how really righteous we are, um, you're in Pharisee land. You're, you are living amongst Pharisees. Run away. Run away. They're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. They're blind guides. Sixth woe. Not only were the Pharisees fanatical tithers, they were wild about washing. Um, just wild about washing. Purification, uncleanliness, they washed this, they washed that. They developed hundreds of rules to keep clean. Anything wrong with being clean? No, I like people being clean. I really do. But some things need cleaning more than other things. What does God want to see clean? Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, actors, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Is he talking about tableware? No. He's talking about our hearts, right? Our, we've got this external thing we show people, and we've got the internal reality. And he says, you are really good at cleaning this. And you never clean this. You're full of robbery. And it's self-indulgence. God wants a clean inside. When the inside is clean and the heart is right, true righteousness begins to flow from that good heart. Pharisees cultivated this pious external Thing outside and seemed like they seemed like they sacrificed all kinds of stuff for God because they donated and devoted so much energy to uh, rule keeping. You know, they, they were big on all of that stuff. But inside, they're robbers and they're preying on people for money and honors and respect and all of that. So they were actually self-indulgent when they acted like they made great sacrifices. Very common in religious circles, that kind of attitude. The leader, the leaders always talk about their sacrifices and their experiences with God and Actually, everybody else is supposed to serve them. That's why they do that. They are, they are the center. If the leader is the center, um, worry. If they say you connect to God through them, worry. The way of the Pharisee is really carnal. It's really fleshly. 
because they aren't really doing it for God. If you could see their hearts the way God sees their hearts, you would see that all of that effort and religion is for their glory in the eyes of men, that that's why they're actually doing it. And yes, there are people like that. It's all about their prestige or their exaltation or money. In America, it seems like it's focused mainly on money. And Jesus calls them actors. That's literally the word hypocrite. Phonies. They're playing this religious thing and it's really all about them. Seventh woe. This is quite similar to the sixth. He's just, the imagery changes and it's even more powerful. So we're moving from washing dishes to tombs. You know what whitewashing is? You take this stuff and you plaster it over and it makes everything look gleaming white and beautiful. That, um, I think Tom Sawyer got in trouble doing that. But um, So we're moving to the whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, actors. For you are like, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear, appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Very nice tomb there. Very pretty. Whitewash. Looks great. Well, what's inside? Dead men's bones. Outwardly pristine, inwardly full of death and decay. So spiritually, in the Pharisee's heart is hypocrisy and lawlessness, acting and law-breaking. Outside, law-abiding, pious, godly. Inside, no interest at all in what God actually wants. None at all. It's not how they think. It's a kind of practical atheism. It's super religious, but entirely focused on oneself and the world. And that's what Psalm 14 means when it says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. You know, that's not an irreligious person like an atheist. That's a person who says there is a God, but in their heart, they don't care anything about him. They don't think about him. It's, it's a show. That's what that's actually talking about. You know, a lot of things draw people to church. A lot of things draw people to certain ministries. You, you, you have to make sure you're drawn to church for the reasons that God wants you to be there. That's what you have to do. That's your obligation. You have to make sure you're drawn to church for God, not for human beings. And Jesus is telling us that we can be very religious and be children of hell. That's possible. It's not only possible, it's common. There's a lot of reasons people get involved in religion. A lot of reasons people come to church. They're really nice people there. In some parts of the country, it's, that's really good for business. Make sure you're there every Sunday. You get a lot of connections that way. Some people reason it's good for the kids to have a little religion. My wife's foster parents wanted her to have a little religion, and then she actually believed it and caused all kinds of ruckus. And she got, they got the real thing. Oh, no, you're, it's not, don't take it seriously. <laughs> Some people love the atmosphere. They love the music. They come, they come out of a sense of duty. I mean, some people just think um, attendance at church leads to good fortune in life. That's about as far as it goes. It's thinking about what God wants isn't even there. None of those are reasons God wants you to come, obviously. And I think we'd all be surprised how many wrong reasons there are to do the right thing. Wrong motivations. The only thing that matters, really, though, is what does God think? What does God think? The Pharisees were meticulously religious because people honored them for it. And it made them prosperous. And they used God as a tool 
to feed their self-interest and their egos. So connecting to a church ultimately has to be about seeking the living God and doing what he wants and knowing him. That's what it's all really about. Now, pleasing a friend or a family member might get you in the door, but you can't stop there. You can't benefit until you seek God and what God wants. And that has to be done with reverence and a a deep humility because sinners should have a deep humility. We've offended a holy God. And so we should have always this profound humility. We cannot forget that these respected religious men, leaders in the community, Jesus Christ himself personally saw as children of hell. That's how he viewed them. And they were very respectable men in their community. But that's how he saw them. So you don't want him to have that view of you on judgment day. I would be horrified if that's what it ended up being. You know, this is so important because people can be so wrong about this stuff. It's, it's easy to be wrong about this. In fact, I think, I think we'll wait a week, a week to do the last woe. And I think next week, let's come back and talk about this clean thing. Uh, this, this tomb and what's in there and this dish or cup and what's it. How do you get clean? How do you actually get it clean? Let's talk about that next Sunday, okay? Let's pray. Lord God, save us from man-centered faith, from religiosity. Let us see in your word the true meaning of what it means to believe because it is all about you. Draw our hearts to you to serve you for your glory, for your purposes, and make us nothing by comparison, mere servants of a great God. We give you glory and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.